This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. And we have here as our guest, uh, Jose Aloy. Hello, Jose. Hello. Um, Jose was a speaker as well at our BCBT uh, Summer School 2016. And um, so, Jose, you, you came from physics, and now actually what you're studying is collective behavior of animals and also in hybrid sort of animal-robot societies. So how did you go from physics into this domain of of the ethology or neuroethology of, of behavior? Well, it's because um, uh, in, in physics, um, people are interested in collective systems anyway. In statistical physics deals with uh, collective systems. Then you have dynamical systems that can deal with collective systems. And so uh, it came to the mind of people that uh, in that field that you can use the tools of physics to build up mathematical models to describe experiment done in uh, done with animals and uh, for instance I was working I started to work on that with Jean-Louis de Nambour in Brussels and he showed he was very sex- successful in showing that he was capable of building experiments that led to mathematical models based on differential equation or stochastic equation that gave extremely good results to describe why, what unsocieties and other uh, behavior in animals collective behavior in animals uh, were happening. So from there, um, Jean-Louis had the idea that um, because all those results were had a high impact in the field, in the, in the new field of collective robotics, uh, people in collective robotics were trying to mimic also, building also a collection of agents that together can perform a task. Um, they were getting inspiration from biology and it came a very simple idea, if we have animals on one side and you have a robot, biomimetic robot on the other side mimicking their behavior, if you succeed in mixing them, you get a new group, a biohybrid group of robots and animals. And because you're able to tune the behavior of the robot, you're capable of tuning the behavior of the whole group. Because what essentially what the mathematical models were showing is that those collective behavior can be described by emergent properties of the system, which means that there, there is no clear hierarchy. Even if the hierarchy is completely flat, every individual is equal, you still get emergent behavior. And then if you inject a few uh, individuals in the system, you can tune the whole system. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a field that is now quite common in physics. Uh, it's uh, more generally, it's the field of active matters where now physics is trying to build uh, from matter systems that reproduce some of the collective behavior observing higher animals like ants, bees, or or birds, or fish at the level of matter. So there has always been an interplay between uh, statistical physics and animal collective behavior. Right. So, but in some sense, you're also then proposing that you can build robots or use robots as a probe into an animal population to understand what the principles are by which such a population operates. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a tool also. So mm-hmm. it's a, you can test if your model works when it is embodied, because of course, of course, you can show that simulations reproduce results that are similar to the animals, 
But then it's even better if you can prove that when you embody that model in, in a completely different uh, agent, which is a robot that has nothing to do with uh, the animal, it, still it works, which, which, which proves that your model is capturing something true from collective behavior. And then, of course, if you try to mix those robots uh, inside the animal group, you're testing hypotheses and you're testing modulating uh, parameters. It, it corresponds to building ex an experiment where you're able to modulate a parameter of the collective, which is not very easy to do experimentally. You can imagine other uh, systems. For instance, people have been trying to teach animals something, to inform them. Then you re-inject the re-inject them in a group, in a group uh, of animal, naive animals, and because they already know, have learned the solution, they are influencing the whole group. Or you can even imagine doing genetic mutations, and some of the individuals have different capabilities, etc. But learning on some animals is very difficult or impossible, and genetic mutation, the link between genetic mutation and higher level of behavior is very weak. I mean, it's not very easy to do, especially with animals like ants, bees, or, or fish. It's complicated. So the robot might be an interesting tool, a kind of microscope to probe collective behavior at, at the animal level. Mm -hmm. So you're proposing that we can model the behavior of a, a group of animals using a small set of differential equations. And uh, you know, that's quite a, a strong claim, because we're obviously going to um, ignore most of the richness of, of those animals and, um, and what they're like and how they're made up. And we're going to look at some very high-level property which we can describe mathematically. Why, why do physicists think that this is going to succeed? Yeah, okay, so it has been proved that it works on some sp experimental physical, case, physical cases, like for ants, for bees, for fish, for birds. Uh, those models have been capturing uh, the essential, uh, the essential mechanism of uh, of the group, how it works, but of course it's and, and it is and, and it's the philosophy of a physical approach of systems. You want a minimal model, you want the most simple model capable of capturing what you're observing in an experiment, right? But of course it doesn't mean that these models are these mathematical models are a model of the animal. They are not. They're just capturing a specific mechanism in a specific experiment. And so there are strong limitations to that. I mean, for the last 25 or 30 years, there have been a lot of success in animal collective behavior, but still, when you look at the global result, there are not so many models that give interesting results. But still, the idea that you can uh, have simple mechanism, simple mechanism that produce interesting collective behavior without uh, taking into account the whole complexity of the animal is a message. You see what I mean? So you, you described an experiment uh, with cockroaches where yeah. you uh, have uh, two containers and you put yeah. the cockroaches, uh, I think, randomly into the containers and then you see how they... They, they choose to go into one bin or another, and you use uh, differential equations to show how that system might evolve over time. Um, and uh, I guess one of the things that can be confusing about this is, is, is your model, is that a, a description of the system, or is it, it's not capturing the causality in the system in the way that, say, a mechanistic model of individual cockroaches and how they make decisions would uh, capture causality? 
I think it's both. It, 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 gives you, it gives you a description of the system and it, it gives you also the cause of w the solution that emerged in the system. It gives you the mechanism that produced this emergent behavior at the population level. But still, you can go down at the individual level and find yet uh, other causes that lead to this solution that emerged in the system. And the, the, what those models have shown, if you think in terms of dynamical system, you have uh, a network of uh, feedback regulation in the system based on positive feedback and negative feedback and nonlinear effects, right? And if you mix that, you get emergence of interesting properties. But that thing, you find it at all level of, uh, the, of living systems. You find it at the genetic level, you find it at the metabolic level, you find it at the physiological level, and you find it at the population level. Those abstract concepts of network of, of uh, regulatory feedback and nonlinear effect leading to em the emergence of interesting patterns has been a lesson of the domain. But, but it seems to me that there are different aspects to this, right? I think on the one hand you're saying, I don't need to model the animal as such. I just want to have a model that allows me to do a meaningful perturbation of that animal group or, or individual. And that then also brings you this whole issue, okay, but what, what will be then a sufficient approximation of a meaningful intervention in such a group? And also in that context, you actually spend quite some time discussing the Turing test, yeah. right? Because in some sense, in the cockroach experiment, also Tony mentioned, you have this problem of imitation. You want to sufficiently imitate an individual cockroach to have a meaningful perturbation of the cockroach group, right? So do you... Would you, then if you take the cockroach experiment as an example, would you really see that as an insect uh, Turing test you're performing, or it, it, it's different? Well, it's, it's somehow, the, I think if you, if, you, if, you, if you reduce the Turing test to, to a social election, I mean, it's, it's like that. You're interacting with uh, an artificial system, and at a certain point, you agree to interact with that system because it's becoming interesting enough for you to interact with. So animals are not at the symbolic level. They don't exchange. They don't cockroaches or many and all nearly all animals, uh, maybe primates do that, but all animals don't don't really communicate symbolically. Like they don't have a, the language, the same kind of language humans have. So their interaction are based on uh, on uh, on other uh, modalities. It, and then yes, if you if you prove that your robot is accepted by the group. And if the animals take into account that robot as a member of the group, whatever that means, I'm not saying that the cockroaches believe or think or whatever they do that the robot is uh, a cockroach. We cannot answer that question. But they do take into account the presence of the robot as another member of the group. And because they do that, the robot is capable of influencing the whole group decision-making process. But what is interesting in the cockroach experiment, it's because we design a biomimetic, a very simple, but yet bi biomimetic at the behavioral level. It was biomimetic at the behavioral level, not the shape, not the material and stuff like that. Uh, a social robot that was programmed to behave like a cockroach in the same experiment, the robot were taking also into account what the cockroaches were doing. And so they were also influenced by the cockroaches. And sometimes the cockroaches were driving the robots 
as a group to a place they wouldn't have chosen uh, alone because they were programmed to prefer to have another preference, for instance. Mm -hmm. So you were you say that the the robot is biomimetic in terms of its uh, behavior. Yeah. Um, but the control system that drives the robot, I think, is a is it a finite state machine? Yeah. And uh, that's not meant to emulate cockroach nervous system or anything like this. So how do you how do you get a um, a, a cockroach like robot that has behavior like a cockroach? Yeah, that's exactly the point. In fact, you don't have to to copy all level of all the levels of the living system. In fact, it's it's based on the idea uh, that is also uh, that also have been discussed in physics in the famous paper by Paul Anderson. Uh, more is different uh, that he published. He, he, he was an emerg He's a physicist uh, of solid state system, and he knows that uh, you have emergence of properties at a certain level. Of course, they depend on the lower level. The the properties of a, of a solid depends on the atoms. It's obvious, but you can have a, a model, a level of description at the solid that is good enough to explain what the solid is about. So it means. You don't need the nervous system of the cockroach necessarily. You don't necessarily need the nervous system of the cockroach to get the behavior. It can be based on another lower mechanism, like the finite state machine. But it also that doesn't exclude the fact that you would like to have also a biomimetic mechanism at the neural level. That's another question also. It's allowed, I mean. You, can, you could do that. You could add an extra layer of, of mimetism uh, that you want to understand uh, if you want to pile uh, a mod neural models, neural net models, biological relevant neural net models with individual behavior, with social behavior. That's another question. But you don't. It's but you don't. You don't necessarily need to include all levels to get the result because each level has its own properties somehow. You see what I mean? Yeah. So you're tweaking the the robot control system to give it. Uh, cockroach-like behavior, which will then generate results as though there was a, another cockroach in the group. I mean, aren't you worried there that there are a lot of degrees of freedom for you to tweak? And so, yes, there were many, in fact. Uh, and 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 what what's interesting is that the the model, uh, the, the this little set, very simple set of differential equation, were predicting many different possibilities to control the group. And, we're pre and, and we only tested experimentally one way of uh, controlling the group. But we know from simulation and from solving the equation there are many other ways. For instance, you can build uh, social robots that are social among themselves, but they do not take care of what the cockroaches are doing. You get a different set of solutions, so a different set of modulation. You can build robots that are completely non-social. They do not take care either of the other robots or the cockroaches. You get different results and so on so you can or, or we chose to 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 show this the, the case where the robot were the same behaving in the same way as the cockroaches but the model shows that you, you have many other different uh, social capability social capability social interaction leading to different solution and of course the intensity of the really of the interaction is also you can also modulate it so you can add a parameter in the model that modulates the probability to respond to the presence of the other. In the case of cockroach, let's say this probability is one. 
because the cockroach consider another cockroach a cockroach, so it's one. But you can, for the robot, you can reduce it. We, we, we have put one also in the experiment we did. But we, in the simulation, you can put less than one. And then you can see uh, what level of interact, what, what intensity of interaction you need to still get an effect. It doesn't need necessarily to be one. Then you can also dis uh, uh, modulate the number of robots you're adding to the system. The, our idea was to show that you need only a minimal model, a minimal number of, of robots to, in, to influence the system because it's a non-linear effect, which is interesting. But of course, you can have a, you can increase the the number of robots in the system, and you will get different kind of solution or modulation. But now it was the case that you had to make the robot smell like a cockroach yeah. to be accepted, while in some sense the shape didn't really matter, yeah. right? So um, what then would be the minimal robot that you think would be plausible to, uh, for a cockroach uh, colony? So the, 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 that's exactly the point. In fact, it's, a, it's the, crucial, the crucial question, is how to make the animal respond and accept the, the, the robot. And it's very difficult because animals are multimodal. They use all their senses to perceive their environment and the others. And we were lucky enough, and it's well known, that insects, and in particular cockroaches, they base their recognition on tactile and olfactory uh, cues, more than vision. So the shape do not matter. It's the, what matters for them is that you smell like a member of the group, and that's enough. Uh, and of course, any mobile robot that is capable of moving around in the system and detecting the presence of shelter in terms of a uh, different intensity of light below or uh, outside of the shelter would be enough. Any shape, and of course you need a, a size that is compatible with the physics. I mean, you're not going to put a robot uh, uh, 10 times larger than the cockroaches because it's a completely different physical world. But the shape in that case doesn't matter. But then we've tried with chicken, we're trying with, with fish, and it's a completely different story. Because those vertebrates are a bit more tricky, they are much more multimodal. So they do take care. They do care about vision. They do care about shape. They they also care about smell. They also care about behavior. So that's why I think, for the moment, trying to interact with fish is pretty difficult. There are a few groups that have been trying to do that, and it's very it's much more difficult to get results than with the cockroaches, because I think fish are much more multimodal uh, animal, and they do take care of. Uh, many different inputs from the sensory system. That's why shape matters, colors matters, speed matters, movements matters, much more than with the cockroaches. So basically we were, uh, I think, you may, you may say we were lucky, but I don't think. I think Jean-Louis was clever enough, Jean-Louis de Nebou was clever enough to choose those insects because uh, he, he has the, the, the intuition that it's going to work because the, it's a, an olfactory mm -hmm. recognition, essentially. But then in the cockroach experiment, where, the, where you looked basically at the ability of groups of cockroaches or a hybrid group cockroaches and robots, um, how they would disperse in an environment or aggregate in an environment, dependent on conditions, uh, so they would aggregate under these shelters, right? Yeah. And you had the notion that was tested there 
was was called collegial decision making. Yeah. Right. So so what what does that really mean? Collegial decision making yeah, in this context. It's, it's, there is a consensus emerging in the system, and this consensus emerges from individuals that are considered as perfect clone of each other. What the model is saying that even if you have a population of exactly identical individuals, you get the collective decision mechanism and the clever way of uh, doing groups. I'm not saying that uh, the cockroach population we're using were clonal individuals. No, there, there, are, there is a lot of inter-individual differences. But what the model shows that in, in completely total absence of any hierarchy, any difference from the individuals, yet you get the collective system mm -hmm. uh, producing this consensus on where to gather which is not a, such a trivial task. Imagine you take a population of about 100 humans without specific structure, hierarchy structure in the group, naive, let's say, individuals, 100 of them, and then you ask them, okay, your job is to split 50-50% between two rooms. Mm -hmm. and then you look at the process of how it's, all that decision is going to, to emerge. And it will take some time, it will take people arguing, people discussing, people starting to count, uh, going from one room to the other to check how many are you, how many are they on the other side. You can imagine that experiment. And it's going to be a complicated uh, mechanism to produce this 50-50% this, uh, um, spread. Of Cockroaches don't do that at all. It's a very simplistic mechanism. They just move around. They know they are in a room, interesting. They look around if they have an enough bodies, and bodies, sorry. And then if, they, if you have this threshold function on the probability to, get, to go out, that makes a trick. So it means in terms of cognitive capabilities, it's very simple, fairly simple. What, the, what, the, what those models are showing, showing, what it goes back to your previous question, Tony, what those mathematical models are showing, if, even if you have high cognitive capabilities, you don't necessarily need to use them all the time, and in particular, to produce that kind of collective behavior. For instance, that's, that's the same kind of approach that people who are modeling uh, crowd movement. Of course, crowd movement with human beings, human beings keep, keep their high level capabilities, cognitive capabilities all the time, but when they are moving in a crowd, they're not necessarily using them, mm -hmm. they are using much simpler mechanism, and yet the, you, you get a structure in the crowd uh, that, that, that emerged from the people moving. So in your collegial decision-making, you have sort of two opposing forces that guide the behavior, right? On the one hand, they want to seek shelter, yeah. but on the, and on the other hand, they want to uh, aggregate. Yeah. But that means if aggregation leads to a lack of shelter, then they will switch and look for another shelter. Yeah. This is essentially what happens, right? Yeah, of course. If the shelter is saturated, hmm? you cannot enter and they have, to, they have to look for another place. But that, that means they, they would always aggregate. This is, this is a yeah. key driver. Th those, those, that, those species of cockroaches are really a gregarious animal. Mm -hmm. They really want to be as a group, to shelter as a group. <laughs> they, and it's been proved that they feel better and they grow better if they live in a, in, in a social environment as a group than when they are isolated. And it's been shown even by biologists that if you tickle them with a plume, their physiology is better. So there is really animals that feel better as a group. So for them, it's important to, to aggregate. To aggregate. Mm -hmm. yes. 
But then to describe those experiments, so we have this bifurcation model, if you yeah. want, right? There's sort of a, a moment of, of um, sort of scurrying around. There's exploration, if you want. And then very quickly, the population falls into this distribution of yeah. seeking shelter below the different shelters that they're offered. And then you interpret that by saying that there's an interaction between positive and negative feedback. Yeah. That there's positive feedback generated by the animal, the internal control of the yeah. animal, and there's negative feedback coming from the environment. Yeah. So how should I interpret that relative to this experiment exactly? Yeah, that's what we find. That's, that's what also is, has been shown by those mathematical models. It, uh, and, and it boils down to dynamical system theory that shows that, for instance, if it, a choice can be described by multiple stable steady state existing as a solution of the system, and those multiple steady states uh, require the presence of a positive feedback in the system. But of course, a positive feedback is like a snowball effect. It's an amplification of what's going on. But then you, you need a limiting uh, uh, mechanism, otherwise the system is going to explode, to blow up, because uh, this amplification mechanism keeps going on, going on. So you always find in physical system, in biological system, a, a, a limitation. But then, what is interesting in the models, uh, all the models I know, is that uh, usually the positive feedback is implemented somehow at the individual level. It's very often a mimetic effect that drives the positive feedback. And the negative feedback is, uh, is given by, the, by the, an environment constraint. Not enough room anymore. In, in the not enough room in the shelter, then it kills the positive feedback. Nobody can enter anymore. So that is interesting. And you find that uh, in all, again, at all level of living systems. If you can describe a metabolic system as a network of positive and negative regulation, a genetic system as a network of positive and negative regulation, uh, neural nets, there are those with a positive and a negative feedback, inhibitor, activator. So you find that this theory of dynamical system gives you that can that you can build artificial system and that you can see that natural system behave the mechanism under uh, explaining their behavior is this network of positive and negative feedback. This uh, dynamical systems approach that you have, uh, it, it, so you took it from statistical physics, you brought it into animal behavior, specifically in cockroaches. And then from there, you want to try and generalize it to other species. And is that going to be an, uh, an easy step? Or as you were saying before, other animals are, are more complicated. And does that mean that the approach is not going to scale up? So it, uh, in fact, there are, there are few examples, after all, uh, that have been described like that. Uh, the, uh, for the, the classical examples are uh, ants, well, the cockroaches we've been discussing, uh, some models with the bees, uh, many models of schooling and shoaling in fish, and then you have bird flocks because those are very large uh, groups of very large number of individuals. Where physical model, simple sim simple model, uh, inspired by the physics method, uh, do something interesting. Then De Neubourg again has shown that uh, for some specific specific uh, behavior. In, in, in primates, you find you, you can still model that in that way from some specific uh, 
behavior. That doesn't mean you're describing the whole animal. It's just you're, you're describing a mechanism that they use in some specific uh, um, decision-making process, like uh, who chose the direction to go. So you have a group of primates sitting uh, calmly there in their park, and then suddenly you trigger uh, the group to, to start a movement towards some place. But then who is deciding where to go? And again, if there is, the, if you have a mechanism that is not based on a strict hierarchy, it's the, the boss is saying everybody to the right. That does you, in capuchin monkeys, it's not what is happening. So it's an, again some kind of self-organized system that is uh, uh, um, driving the system. But it doesn't mean that all collective behavior or any other individual behavior could be described that way. Okay. See what I mean? So I'm not pretending that you can describe any kind of behavior or any kind of colleague behavior that way. And in fact, it's what it what it's very tedious to to build those models because uh, since I am a student and getting old now, uh, I've seen people doing that, and still there are not that many examples uh, because of course uh, animal behavior and, and uh, collective behavior is much more complicated. Uh, than, uh, let's say, uh, gas uh, temperature emergence or something but like that. People have taken these kinds of models and they've applied them also to, you know, a phenomena of human perception. So, for example, uh, the Necker cube, where you see three-dimensional or this two-dimensional shape, yeah. you interpret it in one three-dimensional way and then flip into another. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that, I think, is a similar approach. So, uh, in a way, is this technique sort of too sort of general that it that it that it fits all these different kinds of systems and so it tells us a little bit about them but 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 can it really give us useful insights in, into uh, these systems and how we might say sort of interface with animal colonies more effectively or understand their behavior more effectively yeah that's the research question the ongoing research question is uh, what can you describe by this approach and again this approach works at very different level but let's stay at the collective behavior and and then if you understand that and if the model works for uh, specific cases then what we've learned also is that if you build artificial system they reproduce the same kind of behavior for instance, what was surprising is that when uh, Jean-Louis Denebourg did his ant uh, model for path selection, collective path selection by ants, uh, people in computer science and robotics were inspired by that. And then suddenly we saw the, the emergence of this ant colony optimization field. People would, that took up that model and then they started to use it as a, as a heuristic for uh, either uh, network handling or uh, optimization, which was completely unexpected and they got apparently they there's a whole field of that and they get interesting result then of course we've shown repetitively that you, if you build robots that they can reproduce those kind of, uh, of behavior but we are yet at um, a quite limited thing because we don't have a full description of the the individual if that's your question it's never a full dis dis description of the individual it's a description of a mechanism that takes place in a very specific case but the so you may say okay it's not very useful because it's very narrow as an uh, 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 as a way to work yeah, that's true it's quite narrow there are not so many things explained but that doesn't mean that uh, um, more broadly a dynamical system are not useful because again if you think about the dynamical system 
as this network of positive feedback and negative feedback and, and uh, nonlinear effects, you find them to describe uh, metabolic, uh, genetic, neurals, neural yeah. nets. So the, the methodology of modeling is interesting. But I'm not claiming that it's a way to dis fully describe an, an individual in all occasions during all his life. But there's a problem here, right? Because I could also argue natural language works really well to describe cockroach behavior, so it's a valid method. But I think the question is, how does it help us to gain additional insight in, in the generation of behavior? So it's also a little bit, what's the leverage that it gives us, right? And and there I think there, there's an interesting issue, because in some sense the way you conceptualize behavior is in complete operational terms, also as the agent being under full control of its environment. Everything is in a direct control of external stimuli. And this, of course, was the same premise of which behaviorism mm -hmm. uh, built its science and also uh, created its own doom because mm -hmm. internal factors play a decisive role. Mm -hmm. And you have to account for those as well. Yeah. So it, of course, raises then the question for, the, for instance, your case with the cockroach, to what extent also internal states of that cockroach matter. Let's mm -hmm. say hunger, uh, yeah. reproduction, yeah. Uh, fear, right? So to, to what extent do these internal factors play a role, like motivational states? Mm -hmm. And then, if so, how well can you capture those in that framework? So, first, they do matter, of course. And second, they are not captured by the, the, the model, because the model is, again, the experiments were done in, a, in very specific condition uh, to, to so that we don't have to take care of those uh, internal states. For instance, the, the cockroaches were well-fed or they were starving. So we are sure they start to explore, to look for food. There is no food in the system, so they're going to explore the system and stuff like that. They were put kept in the dark, to, so we're sure that all in the same uh, physiologically uh, sensitivity to light, and then we, you put them in, in an environment that has light. So the model only capture, and that's the limitation, with uh, the, this specific experiment, given rather specific initial condition in terms of internal state of the animal during a, so, a short lapse of time. Mm -hmm. So you may say, okay, but that's, uh, that's mm -hmm. pretty narrow. And it is. But still, we are learning, mm -hmm. you know, it's a scientific process. It's, it's very narrow, but still, we are learning mm -hmm. things. But then I could still argue, yeah. I could have then confirmed that model by running an, a pure cockroach-based experiment without inserting robots, right? Without inserting the, the robot probes. Yeah. And it has been done. Yeah. It so, has. so what? That what's then the added advantage of also using the robot to test that very operational theory of the behavior? So it was. It, it there were multiple goals in that experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the goal was uh, for roboticists because roboticists from the EPFL were involved. It, we didn't build the robots; it's our their job. So for them, for roboticists, it's interesting to build. Uh, co in collective robotics, it's interesting for them to build biomimetic robots that are capable of performing uh, a task and uh, having a solution that looks clever, looks intelligent. So the motivation were, how do I build robots uh, that are, as a, as a collective, can do interesting things? Okay, let's go biomimetic. That's, one, that's their motivation. Our motivation was, okay, but then, uh, okay, we can do experiments with cockroaches, but we can never really tune... Uh, certain parameters, the number of informed individuals 
or the number of, of the type of interaction. If we do that, like uh, a probe exactly that you inject in the system, you have another degree of freedom to perform experiment. And that, that's also a motivation. Then there is, the one, some, there is also another motivation that is uh, hanging there, but we don't have any result yet. But we, we, all, we keep uh, thinking about that is, uh, okay, if you have this biohybrid system made of artificial uh, agents and of natural agents, can it do something more uh, than the, 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 the putting them together? Can you get something extra there? The, but due to the difficulties, the experimental difficulties, uh, we don't have any results that show that you can do something more. But at least you can show that you can connect uh, living and artificial system, that artificial system is interesting, and that you can use them to tune some of the parameters. That's already uh, interesting results. So you, in this experiment, I think you already had an idea of what the dynamical system looked like, and you could sort of say what the equations might be that would govern their behavior. But if somebody's out there collecting a data set about animals cooperating or animals, mm -hmm. robots interacting, how do they go about building a dynamical system description of, of yeah. that? Yeah, that's a completely different uh, question, in fact. It's a completely, the methodology is completely different. So, for instance, uh, in the case of the cockroach, again, uh, and in the case of the ants, uh, you have prior knowledge about those species. They were chosen because you have prior knowledge, prior biological knowledge. And, and, and Denebourg invented an experimental methodology, more than a modeling method methodology, because the animal system, he hasn't invented them, me neither. So it's an old stuff. But, but the, the experimental methodology of binary choice with prior knowledge of specific species may lead to the fact that, okay, you understand if there is a social mechanism that produce, that makes this choice emerge. So it's a combination. No, for instance, for the fish experiments, we don't really have a prior model. So we have to build the robot, the fish experiment, uh, all at the same time, and to try to model the whole system, uh, the whole system, at the same time. And it's much more difficult, in fact, because one of the drawback of this uh, experimental field is you're combining two difficult tasks to perform collective behavior with animals, tedious hard, difficult task, with the task of building robots from scratch. Tedious, difficult, and to program them and to make them biomimetic and stuff like that. So in a project, when you start to do that, it's, it's hard work to get. So no, if you, you cannot just, uh, science is not about looking around what's going on, collecting a lot of data, and magically out of the data, you will have the inside of it's working. No, that's not, the scientific method, at least that's not the scientific method I use, is you have a, a predefined question, you gather data to, that you think is going to answer that predefined question, or you build an experiment to gather that data, and out of that, you prove that the model is working or not. So you have to design your experiment or the, the data acquisition in a way that captures, at least you guess, an educated guess that you capture something interesting out of there. So if you go the, the classical example that uh, Jean-Louis is always laughing about, okay, you want data, you go there, you have uh, uh, grass, you count the number of grass, uh, little pieces of grass, and you have a lot of bunch of data. Are you going to learn something out of that? Not sure. 
because the, it's not the amount of data, gathering amount of data without having a hypothesis before. So again, it's, a, it's more an exper experimental method than a mathematical model um, uh, methodology. But there's a problem, but there's a challenge here, right? Because already the cockroach is a pretty complex organism. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it can engage in many kinds of, of, of complex behaviors. It can navigate. It has pretty good uh, sensory capabilities. Um, so in some sense, I could argue, oh, but in your experiment, you push this high degree of freedom system in a very low degree of freedom yeah. task. And now you can show that with a low degree of freedom model, you can account for the behavior. Yeah. But maybe you are actually, if you want indeed, counting sort of virtual grassroots yeah that are fairly irrelevant towards really understanding what the cockroach is capable of. For instance, in the cockroach case, they're also outstanding in terms of their chemical sensing capabilities. Yeah. And th that is fully ignored in, in, in the current model and also in the robots that you have to, to work with them. So aren't you worried that there's a risk that, that your model is actually giving you such a low-dimensional description of this animal that it is almost meaningless given... It, the complexity of its behavior in its actual ecological niche. Yeah, there, there are two answers to that. First of all, the model has implicit assumption. The implicit assumption do take into account the, the fabulous capabilities of those animals. What the models take into account is that they are very good at olfaction because that's the way they uh, recognize each other. But we, you don't have to make a model of that olfaction necessarily because at that level you can take it for granted, okay? So, but again, there is, a, there is the trap of reductionism, that because it's a reductionist method, scientific method, and if you reduce too much your system, you may not get interesting results. And it's also the danger, as in any experiment, to build an artifact, an artifact in the experiment, a bias experiment, that is not relevant for the for the real, uh, uh, the real uh, stuff, the real system. It's always the danger, but it's the danger in every experiment with an experimental reductionist approach. You can either reduce too much and get not interesting result, or you can completely bias your system. But that you have all the time in, with that scientific method, and you have to be careful about that, of course, not to induce some. Then we have yet another interesting question is that we don't have exactly the same mindset as bio, as the biologists. For instance, uh, many biologists in behavioral science would say, okay, you have really to take care of what the animals are doing in their wild environment, right? In the natural environment. So for them, it's very important to study the animals in their real natural conditions out there in the wild. And they are right, of course. We must do that. And then each time you bring an animal inside the lab, you're somehow starting to build an artifact in terms of experiment because they are not anymore in their natural environment. And so you may uh, be studying something that is irrelevant for their natural environment. But I have the mindset of doing more than that. Yet, let's assume that it's really an artifact. They will never do that in their natural environment because such condition doesn't exist. What we are doing is testing the hardware. So if I can prove that the cockroach in a completely non-natural setup are capable of performing a clever choice, that means that this hardware is 
capable of doing it. And for me, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. For some biologists, they will argue that's irrelevant because they don't need to do that in their natural environment. It's always this mm. discussion and it's going mm. to be always there. But from my point of view, even if you're in a non-natural condition, if you prove that the hardware, which means the, the living system you're studying, is capable of doing that, you've learned something out of that. I think, I mean, as from my point of view as a sort of psychologist, um, I guess what I'm hoping for out of this kind of research is some sort of general laws of social behavior that are going to apply across species and are going to generalize maybe to some interesting situations like, uh, you know, people at football matches, things like this. Yeah. Uh, and there does seem to be the potential for that with this kind of work. But I guess what you're also saying is that uh, there's to actually demonstrate uh, this concretely in terms of describing a set of equations that captures what's going on uh, is very difficult and requires a huge amount of data. Well, Tony, what's also interesting there, in some sense, with your chicken experiment, or the experiment with the chicks, mm -hmm. in some sense you showed the opposite because you, you, in some sense, then invalidated the principles that were out there in literature for many decades, mm -hmm. which is that imprinting works invariably for all chicks, right? Mm -hmm. They hatch, they see a mother-like mm -hmm. figure, and they get imprinted, all of them invariably, on that, mm -hmm. on that object. And actually, in your experiments that you were describing where you had chicks following robots, mm -hmm. you saw a much higher variability. Mm -hmm. So uh, does that make you then more pessimistic about this ambition that Tony is sketching, about identifying these sort of species-independent principles? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, there is a, it's, a, it's a complicated question, in fact. Um, I, um, the, you, what you're looking for is somehow the, the ground of... Uh, of, of uh, the, the general laws and, and stuff like that. And, and it comes down, we may some do a cheap philosophy of science here, it comes down to these uh, universal laws that you find in physics, uh, every phys theoretical physics at least is going to say, okay, Schrodinger equations and uh, gravitation, so it's law of the universe, yeah? it's a bold statement. And we always dream of finding such simple laws, because at the end of the day, they are, you can write in all of them on one single sheet of paper. Of course, to use them, it's more, more complicated, but at least you can write them on one single... A whole physics can be written in one single sheet of A4 paper, right? And then you are, wow, and that describes so many things, and potentially including the structure of the universe. But if you work in the field of complex systems, and I'm from the statistical physics complex system uh, um, stu field, stu field of studies, then you know that's not true, in fact. When you have a complex system, you don't have a single model that captures everything of it. You need several models, a kind of kaleidoscope of models, to answer different questions. For just to, to, to understand how this natural complex system works. And each time you ask a different question, maybe you need a different kind of models. And then as you say, okay, but, well, but still you, you're learning a lot of that complex system. But then it becomes a problem if you have a synthetic approach of system. Because that's what we're really discussing, in fact. Let's, let's imagine I want to synthesize something that is similar as a living system. I want an artificial cell, or I want an artificial cockroach, which is a completely different question. Then with this kaleidoscope, well, you don't know exactly how to use it. 
because you're saying you will not have a single model of your system, then what do you do? Because you don't have the recipe to build it. And you are still, we, I think, I personally still don't know how to synthesize from scratch, synthesize from scratch a complete system. So when, we, when you do the, the cockroach robot, at the end of the day, that robot is not really interesting. It's doing nothing. It's behaving like a cockroach in a specific environment. If you, do, if you, you, you look at in collective robotics, the ant uh, robots, that they all follow each other and they do a trail, a kind of pheromone trail, whatever mechanism they use to do that, say, okay, great, they do it, but so what? What's the use of those robots? Well, there, there are a minimal description of what the cockroach must be doing in that task. Exactly. So but, that's useful. Yeah, but you're not synthesizing. The robot that has been built is not a cockroach. It's a, it's a tiny subset of the cockroach. Now, if you want to build a robot that is much closer to what cockroaches are capable of doing, like you were mentioning, Paul, they have a lot of capabilities, internal state, and so on. It's a completely different question, and you are nowhere. We still a lot of research to do. Well, I think, I, just to kind of defend your research a minute, I yeah. think that, you know, so what, what we're finding out with these kinds of experiments is how little complexity needs to be in the animal yeah. because the environment, and that includes yeah. the other individuals in it, uh, will bring out all of these interesting emergent effects. Uh, so, and 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 then that can apply also to us that we can say, well, this behavior that I thought I was doing was very sophisticated turns mm -hmm. out to be some fairly simple control mechanism in my brain that's responding to you know, the environment in in this this way. So it's a sort yeah. of classic Simon argument that the complexity is not in the ant. Yeah. It's in the ant and in the environment interaction. Yeah. yeah, that I agree. That's one of the major lessons is that you don't need a very high complexity to produce the, what you are observing. But yet we have to think again about that. Well, it's a challenge we discussed earlier, right? Yeah. You do constrain the degrees of freedom of the organism a lot. Yeah. And then you can say, okay, it's a simple control system. But you already know, as you saw with the chicks and with the fish, yeah suddenly life gets way more complicated and these simple yeah. rules already don't hold anymore. right? So I found it interesting that, that with the chicks, you, you actually observed mm -hmm. this massive variability. Yeah. right? That, that seems to be really systematic. Yeah. right? So, so in that sense, maybe the notion of simple rules um, should also be critically analyzed because maybe a simple rule also is a simple rule that should imply the ability to generate huge variability across the population and we're not really used to that right we, we want to think about gravitational forces that yeah, are sort yeah. of pretty deterministic in, in, in that sense yeah. so but what you also did in the, in the case in the experiment with the chicks and also with, with the fish is you start to automate much more of how you process this data right so you get mm -hmm. sort of a to an etonome, how, how, yeah. how would you call that? Atomics, it's not me who Atomics, call it. okay. So that means you start to now capture massive amounts yeah. of data from, yeah. from behavior in an automated fashion, yeah. right? And in the, in the case of the chicks, that really paid off because this allowed you to observe something most people had ignored, which is this variability, mm -hmm. right? That you had sort of a large proportion of the animals in, indeed showing the imprinting a smaller part actually not showing it, and an even smaller part actively avoiding mm -hmm. this this mother object. Yeah. Yeah? So do you see this, this sort of massive scanning of behavior in this automated fashion, including then inserting 
robots that now automatically get optimized to realize certain perturbations as the future of, of neuroethology? Yeah, that's, that's one of the dream, in fact, uh, and, and still it's a lot of work. It's to try to automate as much as we can the experimental, uh, the, the, the theoretical and the experimental method. So to automate the experiments and to automate the data analysis and to automate the model generation. And it's a challenge. It's it's completely open. But it's sure if you if you if we making make progress along that line, then we will be capable of maybe doing starting to do uh, experiment model production embodiment of the model. Embodiment implies uh, coding the, the the controls of those robots, and all that at the moment take years. Mm -hmm. But. So take years. I mean, for simple, th simple, uh, simple between quotes, but yet simple experiments like we have done. So we have to compress that time. So we, uh, we at the end of the day, the only thing that you cannot compress is the physical time of performing the experiments, right? Because uh, if you have to do experiments of one hour with some fish, you cannot compress that time. It's imposed. But then, if you can analyze the data, produce some kind of model produce some kind of controllers of the robot in the same lapse of time, you're saving a lot of, of time. And, in, and there are interesting theoretical questions out there. Can we automate uh, model generation? Uh, that's, it's, again, it's again a holy grail of, uh, of, uh, of modeling. Uh, to what extent can we, model, can we automate data, uh, data uh, analysis? It's again a holy grail in the system. Right. Uh, the, the unsupervised uh, machine learning that everybody's dreaming about. See, because that's again a holy grail of that. So there are many fundamental questions behind that approach. Yeah, but then in your last set of experiments with the zebrafish, it, where also the robots you insert have become much more sophisticated. And also the, if you want the data analysis is more advanced and so on. However, you were not able to really systematically control or influence the, the, the aggregation behavior mm -hmm. of these zebra, zebrafish. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference now, going from the cockroach to the zebrafish? Why, why is it not working so easily? Why is the zebrafish so much more complicated They, they have control? a completely different structure. Uh, uh, they are completely different animals. Of course, they are vertebrates, the other are not, uh, etc. They live in a completely different environment, and they have a completely social and um, uh, and simple life, uh, everyday life that's completely different. For instance, the cockroaches they find they settle. After a while, they settle. They want to, to explore their environment. If they find a shelter, a shelter, they settle there. The zebrafish are moving animals. They never stop moving during the experiment. They never settle. Okay, they stop from time to time, but they don't settle there after a while. We've been trying uh, to, to, to give them some kind of shelter to see if they will select one. No, they don't do that. They oscillate between one to the other. So those animals are on the move all the time. But they need that for, for the oxygen supply or for the gills? or they, they need that because that's the way, exactly, that's the natural way of life in those ponds there in Nepal or India. Uh, they're always on the move looking for food, avoiding, uh, avoiding predators, for instance. That's... So they, and then they're in, in water, they're, you have streams in water and stuff like that. So that these are moving animals. They are all the time on the move. And so it, the question is, you have, not only you have to be accepted, you have to be part of the group, you have to be moving at the same time as a group, and then you have to try to, 
to influence, to modulate that, uh, that uh, on-the-move movement, perpetual movement during those experiments. So it's, it's more challenging, in fact. Right. So do you see this generalized to humans anyway? I'm not thinking too much about uh, humans uh, for the moment because uh, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not well trained to understand uh, human behavior. But uh, the the methods, the scientific methods, uh, could be used in some cases. For instance, crowd movement. It's clear that every many people are doing that that kind of uh, same kind of similar method. Then try to mo uh, to model crowd movement because crowd movement is not doesn't involve high, uh, high cognitive capabilities. Mm -hmm. But I'm not, I don't have a good knowledge about human behavior. And then, you, then again, I think this methodology can be also interesting, but for certain different kind of, uh, of, uh, of questions, let's say. Mm -hmm. But this is for you the outlook, so that uh, your main thrust now is towards these more automated neuroethology experimental systems that, that autonomously... Yeah. I've, I've, yeah, I have two questions, let's say, if you want my, uh, mm -hmm. my roadmap of research until I'm retired. I've, I have this set of methodological questions. How can we automate the process of data analysis and um, model generation and uh, generating artificial systems mm -hmm. that are capturing uh, part of what we observe in living system? But I'm not the only one. It's a, it's a very broad uh, question that is addressed by many people and then there is a, another one which I find uh, quite interesting in fact um, you know why le, for reasons of sustainability again the living system are going to be a very 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 essential they are they always they, they've been always essential for humans but we're back to think again about how essential they are and in fact all those all that research is about uh, interacting and modulating the living system you're interacting with, right? And again, you find that at all level of living system. There are people who are interacting with cells and they want to modulate what the cells is doing. There are like me, we want to modulate social behavior, you want to modulate metabolism, you want to modulate many things in living systems. And then you don't need and that's uh, one of the lessons of those models, Tony, if we go back to your question. You don't need necessarily to build a completely artificial living system to modulate the natural living system. You see what I mean? You can capture part of the living system, build an, artifi an artificial one, a machine, let's say, that is going to interact with the living system and drive it to a state that you find interesting. It's very common. Breweries have been doing that for hundreds, not thousands of years, I think. So the brewer, what is it doing? He's putting a living system in a tank, and then it's driving this tank, controlling the temperature, the sugar level, to produce, to, to drive the, the, the yeast, to produce either wine or beer or something else. So that's a way to control a collective system, which is called yeast, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you get the interesting product. In fact, we, we have to start to generalize that, that way of thinking, to have a system that drives a living system, but in an, automated, in an autonomous way, in an automated, but also in an autonomous way. Because, of course, uh, if you take brewery as uh, one of the uh, uh, beautiful biotechnology that is uh, centuries old, 
it's the brewer that is driving, keeping care of his tank, uh, fermentation and driving the system. Now imagine you have a robot that is driving the tank and doing uh, the beer. Can we generate a robot? Yeah, there's some automation uh, for that kind of fermentation stuff. But can we find other, other, uh, other systems where you want to drive uh, living systems and you want it to be driven by an, another autonom an artificial autonomous system? A biohybrid system, and why you want to do that? Because you want to exploit the capabilities of the living system to produce interesting product for you. Uh, beer and wine are extremely interesting product for us, but you can also uh, those producing drugs or producing other kind of uh, of materials that you want to extract from the living system. So we're approaching a time in our history which is going to be a real uh, step change when uh, we're going to have uh, robots, not just in factories, but uh, uh, in society and particularly in our streets. And I'm thinking uh, perhaps most immediately we're going to have lots of vehicles on the roads, which are actually robots, uh, interacting with uh, other vehicles which are driven by people. So I'm wondering if, if these kinds of uh, approaches that you're having is going to generalize up to, say, looking at the impact of driverless cars on uh, uh, how how people will drive their cars because people are speculating you know once there yeah. are driverless cars on the road uh, other people will change their behavior because they will know that the driverless cars behave in predictable ways but i think that there is going to need to be more of a science of this because uh, right now it is just speculation yeah absolutely i do i wouldn't dare by the methods i'm doing would apply immediately to there but that's a good question when you introduce some autonomous system in contact with the living system, what's going to emerge? And we have no idea how to do that for the moment. Still, you still have to. We have still to work about that. How do you drive a, a, even a yeast cell? We don't have no idea. Uh, you say so how do you control? To what extent you can control its mechanism right. or its genetic regulation? It's not clear. But what your research shows is that we ought to be wary of the fact that there might be small perturbations yeah. you can make to the system, which could have very large scale yeah. effects. That's, that's a lesson from complexity and dynamical system. If, you've had, if you have non-linear system, small change in the initial condition can lead to, uh, to a big change in the system. The second lesson is a small change in, a in the parameters of the system can lead to a bifurcation, which means a bifurcation means solution that appear or disappear. And uh, it's one of the major concern uh, if you think about ecosystem or the, or the biosphere or the climate it's that uh, because those systems are most probably non-linear, if we start changing the some of their parameters, like the quantity of carbon dioxide we're injecting in the atmosphere, we may have a strong non-linear effect and we cannot exclude that it can be a dramatic change in the properties of the biosphere. You have seen, we, we've seen collapse of, uh, of some ecosystems that uh, are robust to a certain extent and then suddenly they collapse. So we've seen example of that. So it, uh, and, and, I, and I'm sure that we don't have good ideas of how to deal with that or to control that. It's still, uh, it's still a knowledge that is not well established. For instance, we have people that have been managing eutrophization uh, of, uh, of a lake, right? Suddenly you inject a fertilizer there, you have a boom of algae, and then you kill 
all biodiversity there. That is well known. And then you have to manage how do I put back my lake in a state that I can have fish and biodiversity. So this kind of general question, I think, has to be addressed also by the same kind of tools. And again, the, the nonlinear dynamical system are good tools to address those questions. But also then that type of model shows that the system will be intrinsically unpredictable. Certainly, if, if the individual agents become more nonlinear, like in the case of having humans around. So, so if you talk about inserting, for instance, autonomous technologies in society, we should think very carefully about, indeed, what kind of reactions will trigger in the environment in which they have to operate, right? Yeah. And these environments will, this will include humans. Yeah. So now, so we look at this complex interaction between, in this case, artifacts, humans and environments, right? And also in your model, you would say, well, the behavior we observe is indeed the function of, let's say, the controller of, of the agents, their morphology, mm -hmm. as, you, as you showed us with the cockroach, and the environment itself. How many shelters are there, as an yeah. example, right? But in a, it, juxtaposed to that, you're saying, but there's no hierarchy, right? Or you, you don't feel that the notion of hierarchy and hierarchical relations is helpful in trying to understand that system. So how should I be able to, how can I combine these two positions in, in a consistent uh, no, it's framework? Not, yeah, but it's, it depends what you mean by hierarchy. Well, in the case of the cockroaches, hierarchy in the, at the social level. But then in terms of complexity, that if you start to think the, it's the system that is the system, you cannot cut part of it because it's, it, it, it is a system. The whole thing is a system. It's like people in a, are doing now system science for the for Earth, with this controversial hypothesis of the Gaia hypothesis. But even if you get rid of that controversial hypothesis, most people are now thinking that the Earth about the the Earth system as a whole. So if you made a change in the in the climate, it's going to change biodiversity. But if you change biodiversity, you're changing also the local climate. And so you see that you have to, to take into account the whole system. And, and then what I'm claiming there is that, okay, the system is the system. There is no different level, but we have to work with that. So there is a methodology to work with that, is to select different level of description. But the... The, they have been chosen to answer a question. That doesn't mean that they, they have their own existence. On, they are not ontologically existent there. But it's a natural, sometimes it's a natural way to, to cut a system. For instance, if you're thinking about a solid, okay, you have the molecules, the atom. That's a, that's a, a very evident way, natural way to cut your system. But then if you, if you have more complex way, more complex system that, uh, that, uh, than a crystal, a solid crystal, if you have the, 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 the earth as a system, the way you're going to cut the system to, ans to answer a question is open. It's up to you to find the, the relevant elements in the system to build a model to answer your question. You're not stuck uh, to a given Obvious, obviously given uh, level of description because there would be the level of description. And it's one of the open questions in, 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 in complex system with um, emergence. We know it's, a, it's also a controversial term, emergence, but still uh, choosing what you want to include in your, in, in, 
in your description, in your model, depends on the kind of question you're going to address. For instance, with the fish or with the cockroaches, if I just want to describe their social behavior, I don't need to go to discuss their sensory motor system or their neural system. I don't need that. But no, if I want to uh, study the impact of the neural, the sensory motor system on social behavior, then of course I have to include that level also. But, that, but that's a different scientific question. I want to know the impact of the sensory motor system on social behavior. My other question was simple, simply, I want to understand social behavior at the level of the population without taking into account uh, other levels. If you want to now to study what is the, the, the metabolic impact on, uh, on social behavior, because the state of the agent is changing depending on its metabolism, yet another question, then you start to include the metabolism. So you have, we have to think as a system as a whole, but then as a methodology, we have to decide what are the relevant pieces that we have to take into account to have a good description, to get a good answer to the question we're addressing. And we have to be open-minded about the pieces we are including. So you, had, you had this talk uh, about um, uh, disease, uh, mental disease and stuff like that. Uh, you have a whole system that is the human being, and then you can recut it in many different ways to take into account all the pieces that are relevant to answer the question, how do I cure that specific disease? One thing that's distinct about your approach is that, uh, as you say, a lot of people will take a, an approach where they try, for instance, to, to understand social behavior in terms of sensory motor systems. Yeah. So you're trying to be, describe what happens at the group level in terms of some process going on inside the individual. Uh, and most of the science you're describing, you know, is is saying, let's look at this level and see how it impacts on this other level. So how does metabolism affect social behavior? How do genes affect social behavior? But but the dynamic systems approach doesn't seem to do that. It seems to say, let's try and capture behavior in terms of behavior. There is no mm -hmm. crossing between two levels. Yeah, but that's, again, complex systems. Complex systems have... have, the, have uh, uh, let's say, level to simplify the discussion where at which you can describe them. Mm. You can take into account uh, the temperature of a gas. You don't have to take into account the kinetic energy. Simple temperature is good enough because you have this, this different way of uh, measuring that or describing that. Sometimes you don't need all those details in terms of kinetic energy or vibration or quantum effects uh, in the side. Yeah. No, it's the, 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 the normal temperature that everybody knows with a thermometer could be good enough. But sometimes not. Sometimes you need to get into the other kind of details because you want to a different answer. For instance, with the fish, what we're trying to do now is, okay, we have plenty of models of uh, bird flocking or fish schooling and schooling, right? And the Vichek-like model uh, that they've been done in, in physics in the 90s. And, but I say, okay, I have a different question. What kind of information do they take into account and how do they process that information, right? That's a different kind of question. Then I, start, I, have to, I have to start to open the black box of the individual. So I have to think about what is the vision, in how vision works in fish, in that specific species of fish. Then I have to kind, some kind of have a model of that, a minimal model. I don't have to take into account all the details of vision of the eye and stuff like that. A minimal model. And then what's the action we get in response to what, that perception? 
that we did a model like that. It's, we, we, you have the field of perception, the fish sees where are the individuals, and then it makes a probabilistic decision to go to a certain direction. Then you have the other step. Okay, in that model, there is no processing of the information. There is this probabilistic description of the, the, the decision that the fish makes to go towards a certain direction. Now, if I want to understand how that information is processed, right? Yet another question, yet another layer to add to the system. Yeah, but there's, there's a challenge here, you know, because already, so Poincaré already, you know, was, was talking about, about concepts as scalpels to which you yeah. sort of carve reality. And then, yeah. then Plato, in his dialogue, uh, Phaedrus, uh, has this famous this motto of that you carve nature by its joints. That means there's some intrinsic structure, mm -hmm. and by accessing that structure, we can gain knowledge. But now, in, 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 if we discuss hierarchy, right, across these many levels of organization, you seem to be saying, well, we should not commit ourselves too strongly about hierarchical relations. But does it imply that also intrinsically there is no hint of a hierarchical structuring? And don't you run the risk then of basically advocating, let's say, okay, there's an amorphous structure with many elements that have no specific relation in a hierarchical sense, and I can now arbitrarily group them in any way I like. Because, of course, that search space would be huge, right? So do you really believe that there is no intrinsic hierarchical organization in these systems? No, the, 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 the patterns exist. I mean, living, living organisms are not amorphous stuff, a uh, bunch of things interacting. The structure exists, the shape exists, the patterns exist uh, in space and time and stuff like that. But the, the, the whole thing is a system. So some, some people say, okay, you take a thermostat, you cut the, the, uh, the wire, you don't get the, the feedback, then it doesn't work. So you see, aha. But it, of course, because the thermostat is the system, you cannot cut the wire, otherwise you don't have a thermostat anymore. You have to consider everything together. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a wire, a temperature sensor, and some, some way to act on the radiator right? that you need. So, so all those pieces do exist, and they, have, they, are, they are displayed in a certain pattern. You have to put your temperature sensor at the, at the right place. Uh, you, you, need, you need to act on the, on the heating device in a certain specific way. So the pattern exists, but the, you get regulation of the temperature, homeostasis of the temperature, temperature, if you have the whole system. And then if you want to understand how it works, Okay, for a thermostat it's pretty easy, but still you can get instability in thermostat in terms of negative feedback and you get oscillation and stuff like that. You see, then you start to analyze how it and then you, you can recut your system any way you find it interesting to answer the question, how do I get a stable temperature, a, give, a chosen given stable mm. temperature, no oscillations in the temperature, no instability and stuff like that. So for living system, it's still an open mm. question. Okay. How do you shuffle the things? Uh, but you see that you always have an incomplete. Uh, in the, again, talking this morning about this uh, the genome, uh, proteome, neural nets, immune system. Well, when you take into account, if you want a biomedical application, you have a disease. It can involve many, many things about many things at the same time. So how do you choose that? Or you may decide, okay, 
it, it's a kind of cognitive uh, dysfunction, so it's the brain. How do you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a guess. I mean, it's an educated guess. It's right. probably involves. Yeah, okay, it's obvious. But how do you know it's only the neural nets? No, it's not glial cells. It's not uh, the other state, the physiological state. It's not a genetic defect. So you have many, many re- reasons to, to think that many other pieces can be uh, involved. So people, some people are obsessed by the brain in itself, and not even the brain in itself. You know, Paul, it's only a set of neurons in itself. Like there is only one type of cell <laughs> in, in, in the cortical column. So some people are doing models where you, only, you have only one type of cell. And they pretend it's cap- they are capturing some... Well, are they? Maybe. But you know, there are all the different ways you can uh, describe just a cortical column because there are many other things involved there. Mm-hmm. So, taking, so the, only way, the only methodology you may have is to have educated guess of what pieces to take into account, because it's a system, it's a complicated system, it's not only a complex system, but it's a complicated system, and then you have to try to grasp the elements that are going to help you to have a model to answer a specific question. Right. But now do you believe... Also, as a physicist, that the math, the mathematics is all there, the framework is there, we just have not worked hard enough to apply them to this domain of biology and, and psychology? Or do you believe the math has just given us a starting point and most of the work still needs to be done? Well, that's, a, that's again a big question. Uh, there are some people who think we don't have the math to describe a complex systems because there is something uh, difficult there. And, and some others are claiming, yeah, but we've done already a lot of, uh, we have a lot of mathematical models to describe the system. Uh, I'm not sure. I have no specific answer to that. Uh, it's cle- but clearly we are, what, if we look at the history, let's say again of physics only, because physics is clearly linked to mathematical methods, what physics has been doing since the beginning, if you if you place the beginning of physics with Galileo Galilei, let's say, the physicists have been and mathematicians have been working hand in hand to invent at the same time the physics models and the mathematical tools. So maybe mm-hmm. you we, st- we will still need to invent new tools. Uh, and I'm I'm in physics there is this famous problem of the n core problems. You know the when you have n bodies there and and uh, entities then it's becoming a mess because if you if you want to describe them that the so-called fundamental laws of physics as soon as you have three bodies there <laughs> it's becoming a mess in mm-hmm. terms of you cannot solve the equations and imagine you have avogadro uh, bodies there so so it's a, it's a it's a big issue that's why statistical physics has been developed and those methods so now we have complex system with uh, with a huge number of uh, elements there. So the question is, will we need new models or new mathematical techniques? Why not? Why not? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to invent them myself. Okay. But now the other thing is that, that you are in this tradition, you come out of this tradition that since the late 80s, more or less, was also advancing this link up of, of dynamical systems and life and also mm-hmm. fields like artificial life and yeah. so on. So now we're no, almost 40 years later, I'll say 30 years yeah. later. Um, how much progress did we then make on really understanding what life means? To d- does this model you advance actually help us to understand and to define life? Or so little piece of it. Okay. So we're still far, uh, far away from understanding. 
Well, there was the famous quote of Feynman on his blackboard, which is, you, you know it better than me. <laughs> what I don't understand, I cannot construct. No, I can, no, I can only understand what I can construct, right? Or what I can build. Yeah. yeah, so if you don't understand the system, you cannot mm. build it, basically. Or the other way around. Mm -hmm. Actually, it goes back to Giambattista <laughs> Vico, the 18th century philosopher, who says that the truth and the fact are reversible. Yeah. Okay. But so, so yeah. Yeah, but then, but then again, you think about the people in synthetic biology. There is no such thing as a synthetic cell. By syn purely synthetic, I mean from scratch. So what uh, people are doing for the moment in the field to try to understand how it works is taking pieces apart and reassembling them or injecting pieces from there. You take the genome from one cell, you inject it in another cell, you take piece, you take a subset of uh, genetic regulation, you inject it. So we are tinkering still with, uh, with what, it is, uh, what mm. a cell should right. be. But we don't have a, a full understanding of just a cell, a bacteria. Or a yeast cell. Right. There are still things that we don't know. So but so now look, so we made a grand tour. Yeah, we made a grand tour uh, of, of dynamical systems, um, behavior in our life. Um, and you came also a long way in that whole adventure over the last decades, um, starting at a physicist, now trying to understand complex behavior. So if you would like to follow in that tradition, uh, the, the Jose Alloy tradition, what would be Jose's law that we have to adhere to? <laughs> it's more, it's more a, a way of thinking and a methodology than a, than a law. Um, I don't, I'm, I don't think for. I'm, I'm skeptical that for complex, real complex systems, we will have the law or the sim, the simple set of equation that like we have Maxwell's equation, Einstein equations, or Schrodinger equations. I think that doesn't work for real complex systems. I, it's a conviction. I cannot prove it. I have no theorem that proves it. But um, when you're facing such system, like living system or the Earth system, that includes living system, it's so complicated that we will not have a single set, simple single set of laws, but we will, we will need a huge collection of good models capturing pieces of the system to... Uh, interact with it mm -hmm. and so we have to be quite modest in fact mm -hmm. that's what people are afraid of geoengineering mm -hmm. I mean, there are people who want to interfere with climate by geoengineering well that's a big question you better think twice or even more than twice before starting to do that because we have no single idea what's going to happen mm -hmm. at the same time because climate change is becoming some, some such a big existence mm -hmm. issue for the humankind well, you, you may th start to think about how to interact uh, with that complex system that is the Earth system. Yeah, but look, we, we want to put uh, your law, Jose's law, on a bumper sticker for Tony's car. So you cannot have, like, two pages. <laughs> <laughs> so what's Jose's law that we can fit on a bumper sticker that fits on Tony's car? Think again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then, uh, three years from now, we're going to come visit you in Paris, yeah. um, where you're going to take us out for dinner. And then we're going to interrogate you about um, a prediction you're going to make today. And the question will be three years from now, did you confirm this prediction? So what's the prediction you're going to make today that you're going to give us the answer, the confirmation to three years from now? What's the main hypothesis you would commit yourself to within your domain of research? Hmm. Uh, it depends which domain you're... Um 
you're talking about? The one about ro animal-robot interaction? The one we discussed today. Uh, I think uh, my prediction is that uh, we will not have made a lot of progress in the next three years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jose you know, Aloy, thank you very much for this conversation. <laughs>